Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 190. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, there nearly wasn't a show this week. <laughs> we moved the moved the ship or moved the hub of the ship, my little kind of workstation, moved it to the other side of the room. But that involves honestly taking all wires out of everything and like mixing desk wires and everything. And oh, <laughs> I'm one of them people. It's like if it's a car, I just want to switch the engine on and just get get the work, get wherever I'm going. And it's exactly the same with all this mixing desk mal- malarkey. I don't want to know how it works. Do you know what I mean? I just want to. Talk into the mic and record the show. But <laughs> there's a little lesson. Learn how it bloody works. Because once we undone everything and moved the desk over, and now I'm in front of the window and it's fantastic. It took hours to get this thing sorted out again. And I'm saying, oh, I've got a show to do. I've got a show to do. It's my little life. It's my little world. And it was just like, I was right. Crumpy old sword <laughs> for a few hours the other day. But anyways, we are here. This is proof of it. We have a show 190. I'll give you a little heads up who's coming in today's show. We have an interview with like one of the kind of hottest UK writers at the minute, Mark Sharan Newton. Then we have a short story by Jack Dan. And it's a little kind of follow-on from Cafe Culture, which we played probably about a year ago now, maybe a little bit less. This one's called Mohammed's Angel, and it's narrated by Mike Boris as well, who actually did the Cafe Culture one. We also have Everything by Morgan Saletta. Then we have Main Fiction by Walter Tevis, called The Big Bounce. Walter Tevis, unfortunately, died a few years ago, but... You know, you think, Walter Tevis, who's Walter Tevis? Well, I'll tell you when we get to the story, but I read his Mockingbird story book, and it was just fantastic. Listen out, and I'll tell you all about Walter Tevis, because he's the kind of writer I discovered, and you'll know everything about or you know the kind of films he's done, you know the kind of the books he's wrote for the films, but in kind of science fiction terms, you think, Walter Tevis, I'm, I'm not too sure. So listen out for that, because... This guy, that book I read, was just staggering. And I'd you know, recommend anybody to pick up Mockingbird by Walter Tevis. That is today's show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first off, we have an interview with, like what I say, is one of the kind of rising stars of the UK scene there, Mark Sharan Newton. Mark is the writer of Legends of the Red Sun. This is a series of books that kind of started with Knights of the Viljamer, then came City of Ruin, and now the Book of Transformations. And I was talking to Mark in the interview, and there's another one in this series as well. And like I say, that 
we'll get into that in the interview, but, you know, everyone's kind of praising Mark and his work. And now, you know, perks of the job. I was lucky enough to get, you know, the first one and two and this book here. There it is. You can hear it again in the interview. Is landed on my desk. And I'm so pleased because this Mark is a fantastic new writer hitting the scene of UK writing. So we have on the line Mr. Mark Charan Newton. Mark, nice of you to come on board. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, Mark. Now, listen, I've got your new book here. There it is. Let, it's, it's part of the series of the Red Sun, Legends of the Red Sun. It's the Book of Transformations. Mark, you're making some waves in the kind of writing circle. Is, did you expect to get such good praise? I mean, you've got praise from China Mierville, The Guardian, The Times. It, things are looking good for you. Yeah, it's... Um well, it's not been a bad start. I can't, I can't say any, any, any fairer than that. I think uh, no matter what, um, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite competitive, and I think a lot of writers always want to do a little bit better. But, yeah, I mean, looking back, whenever I get a, whenever I get a new book in and I look, look on the back cover and see um, some of the quotes, you think, yeah, actually, that's a, that's a fair achievement. And obviously getting the, the China Miable quote, because it's no secret that I'm a big fanboy of his. Um, so to get a quote from him was, uh, was, you know, it felt like job done. <laughs> um, going back a few years, I read um, uh, was it 2003 when The Scar came out. That was really my first sort of, the first book I read where, and it was, it was my first book of China's that I read, where I felt, wow, this is, you know, my imagination got absolutely stoked and it flared and I thought, I need, I want to write now. I, want, you know, I couldn't find anything on the shelf that was really hitting the spot. So I thought, you know, let's give this a go myself. So, you know, coming full circle sort of, what, sort of eight, nine years later to actually get a quote on the back of a book, it's... Uh, you know, it feels pretty cool. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Have you always wanted to write, or is this something that, like you say, just kind of kicked off since reading China's work? Yeah, well, I think it's one of those things. I mean, for um, for years, uh, when I was a kid, it was music. Music was my big thing. Um, I did all sorts of... I think I was, I was 16 when The Prodigy were, you know, pretty big, and I was doing all that kind of digital music stuff at school and uh, and in a home, and, and that's, that, that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. And then, you know, you get to the age where girls are interesting and you think, I need to buy a guitar. And so um, the guitar was a big thing for years, and I kind of guess that was my little creative outlet. Um, and it wasn't for years later where I kind of stopped doing that, and, and I was working in a bookstore. Um, and, you know, up, up until this point, I've always been a big fan of books. I've always read things. Um, but it, it absolutely never occurred to me that I, I had an interest in writing. And it was only, like I say, when I was reading uh, um, The Scar, and, and I think you hear a lot of other writers say this, they kind of thought, well, they can't find books like that on the shelf. So they think they want to write one themselves. You know, they want to give it a go um, just to sort of scratch that uh, imaginative itch. Um, and, and, that's, and that's pretty much it. I had absolutely no intention of being a writer. And I was, I was, actually, I was, I was reasonably lucky. I was quite um, quick in getting an agent. Um, I think I was, it was it was still quite some time before I got published, but getting the agent was the motivation to make me keep doing it. Um, and so and so that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, I think it was six years later, um, no, maybe not as long as that, five years later when I finally got published. Um, but I don't think if, if I hadn't got the agent, I don't think I'd have had that motivation to, to carry on going. So I think it was two or three failed books before I finally got there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I think... There's a huge amount of looking in 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 any writer getting published, um, but I had absolutely you know absolutely no plans of doing this. I think life sort of life sort of takes some more tangents because I got quite heavily involved in publishing as well. I, I kind of worked for um, uh, Black Library imprint, Games Workshops publishing imprint for a few years, and they published uh, Black Flame, 
which was a media tie-in in Britain, and uh, there was Solaris, um, and I was there on the, you know, helping set up Solaris, and, and that was only because I got a job at a bookstore, which is a kind of fairly random job to get in the first place. So, you know, it's, uh, being involved in publishing and involved in books, writing books and science fiction and fantasy didn't, you know, it, it was all a complete random, random it, chance. It, it's funny because the next question what I'm going to say is you, you put yourself through like an environmental science degree and, yeah, then, and, yeah. then, and then you go into kind of book selling, which it doesn't seem the right path to choose. Why, why was the book selling? Because it actually it was like, and I used to, and I don't know if this, is this company, is the Autogaz still going that company, is it? No, it was, um, you, it was, it was absorbed into Water Systems. I think Water Systems bought it out. Um, or bought all the shares. Like it was some kind of kind of trickery, uh, well, quite legitimate trickery. Um, when they bought it out, I think it was 2006 now. Um, so all the all the Otaku stores asked, um, were absorbed into Waterstones, and it's all the big Waterstones brands now. Um, but many of those regional stores, are, you know, they just basically changed the colours of the bookshelves and changed the uh, changed the name on the front of the shop. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> to, to cut a long story short, I was actually saving up to do a a, a, a master's degree. And you know, I'm not I'm not from a particularly wealthy family, so I had to you know get a take a year out, get a job, and uh, and save up the hard way, and 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 that happened to be in a in a bookstore, and working in a bookstore, I felt actually this is quite good fun, and I got another job in a in a bigger bookstore, um, and met uh, um, George Mann, actually who uh, who is a another author, uh, and who oversees the Black Library imprint, and then was with yeah, eventually we both kind of moved to to Games Workshop, and we both help set up the publishing input. So yeah, it's a, you know, you don't, <laughs> I wish there was some kind of grand strategy that I had, but it was just purely accidental. So, um, but you know, sometimes you just got to go with the flow and you know, if it feels good and it feels right and it, it seems a great opportunity, then you just got to do it. Well, where, where were you going to go with your environmental science degree then? What path had you kind of mapped well, out in your mind? In my mind, I wanted to do, I mean, the degree was some really obscure one to do with taxonomy of and biodiversity and 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 I, when I was a uh, you know for, for those few years I really wanted to be a what was called an ethnobotanist someone who who goes out to you know studies how indigenous people use plants in, in all sorts of you know sort of medicinal or for food or whatever ways um, and you know, that was that was the kind of the the, the aim uh, and and that kind of got shelved when I got the job in publishing really so yeah big old tangent that one. <laughs> I think that's just fantastic. Tell, you, you hinted at there, mind you, but tell us about. Did, so, did you and George set up Solaris? You know, like, are you the ones? Yeah. That... Well, what what happened was um, when we we both worked for um, uh, Games Workshop. George was in charge of this, the sales side of things, and I came into work as an editor on the uh, the Black Flame imprint, which was it did the licenses for 2000 AD and um, New Line Cinema. So they were really, you know, great fun, pulp horror, um, pulp science fiction kind of imprint. Um, and we kind of, there was this sort of talk about setting up an original science fiction imprint. And of course, by this point, we built up a distribution network for, with, with the Black Library as well, because it was all one family uh, of imprints um, with Simon & Schuster in the States and in the UK. So we were ideally positioned to then say, well, you know, let, let's let's see if we can start up a science fiction imprint. So it was myself, Christian Dunn, uh, who still edits the Black Library, George, who still works at Black Library, uh, and Mark Gascoigne, who is now at Angry Robot. Um, and we all, we, you know, we sort of sat down and just just made a publishing imprint happen. I guess you know, it was a it was a fairly big effort on all parts, um, and you know, it, it's sort of miraculous 
sort of sit there one day and 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 you, you build this brand from scratch. So it was a uh, it was good fun. Was, we were quite quite lucky that we had a small team that we could make things happen pretty quickly, and we didn't have you know those sort of big um, big rents that London publishers have to pay. So we were you know we just sort of uh, were ideally positioned really. And 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 publishing at the time was taking this sort of strange split between you know large scale corporate publishers who were they were merging with each other and 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 then you had the small press on one hand but there was no one sort of in the middle and that's where we sort of positioned ourselves um you know catering but we weren't you know we didn't have any expectation to sell millions of novels although if that happened that would have been nice um but we could cater for that mid list and that that was our original aim and you know we had some had some pretty good successes there so uh yeah, it was, it was, there were four of us, and obviously the sales team and, and, and a lot of other people involved in it as well. Um, well, I tell, yeah, that was a, tell you what, let's sorry, talk. Well, no, I want, I want to talk about your kind of work as well. Tell us about Legends of the Red Sun, then, because this is just like a series of books. Now, the third one's out. Is is that going to be the last in that series, or, or is the plans for more? There's um, there's one more plan which I'm I'm writing now, about halfway through it actually, and. And, and with this series, I plan for, for each of the books to kind of be a standalone, apart from the last one, because it ties up a lot of um, a lot of the series. Um, so they're kind of they're kind of like the first three are like mosaics. They sit alongside each other, um, and it's only when you see the last one that all you know all the sort of threads pull together and it becomes a coherent series. Um, but when I when I sort of started writing uh, this series, I, this series I didn't want purely for my own sort of entertainment i didn't want to have to keep resorting back to the other books to to write this novel and for, for readers as well i think it's quite it's quite frustrating when you have to well it's quite frustrating when you have to go back to, to check something that happened in book one before you can quite understand what happened in book two and three uh, and i didn't want people to have to do that but yeah purely uh, purely for that reason and, and, and partly because for my own I just get bored if I was writing this giant linear thing because I've got a fairly short attention span as it is. Um, I'm, I'm sort of you know, part of the internet generation. The next shiny thing I get, oh, what's the hell, you know? Um, and I'm like that with the books as well. If I'm not careful, I can just get... It can show... I, th- I think it can show if I'm bored with the novel, so I kind of scrap all that and, and have to be... Um, I have to be writing something which entertains me and can keep my attention going for a year. Um, so, yeah, each of the each of the novels is a... They kind of stand alone, and they they follow a loose, um, a loose pattern. And I think if you read them more in order, then you'll get the bigger picture. But I, I definitely wanted each one to 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 be to be its own self-contained novel. And people have read um, the second one and and, and realised there were other things going on, but it didn't in any way um, stop them in, you know, enjoying a full coherent story. What I'm interested in, you know, you, you kind of said you just, you started with your, your first. Where did you learn the kind of craft of writing? Did you learn it on the first, you know, Legends of the Red Sun? Did you learn it on that first novel, or had, have you been well, kind of writing and? Because I noticed you haven't done any short stories, and normally that's the way to go. You know, you kind of, you, or you might have done some short stories. I, I can't see any that you know on the internet that you've kind of done. So I, I'm thinking, have you just, you know, I'm going to write this book and. You, look, it's wrote and it's it's brilliant. You know, or your series is brilliant. How do you go about well, learning the craft? It's um, I think it's it's always the um, yeah. Every, every writer's always different. Um, I certainly 
I think I'm pretty crap at short stories. I, I, I like that broad canvas. I like, uh, you know, I like the fact that you can you know, drop thread things in and out and have it appear, you know, page, you know, chapters and chapters later. And I like the, I like the layering of effects in a novel. And um, so I, I don't think I'm, I'm great at the, at the, you know, the kind of craft and the, you know, the artisan short story. I'm not particularly good at that. So I, I had, um, I mean. I've, I've got you know a couple of unpublished novels which 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 should hopefully never see the light of day, um, <laughs> and that, I think that's pretty much how, you know I learned my craft by doing something. Um, it was enough to get an agent, and I'm I'm lucky to have the agent John Gerald, um, who um, could you know give me feedback. And when we send it to publishers, the publishers who are rejecting it also have feedback. And I guess you know you do. I must have written three or four hundred thousand words, which were pretty rubbish before I got um, I got the publishing deal. And actually, I, I did have a, a, a small press novel called The Reef, published by Pendragon Press in the UK. Um, so I think that was I think that was my third novel that I'd written. So my major label, my major label debut, if you like, was the the Red Sun series, and that was um, it was my fourth finished novel i had you know a couple under the belt and, and a few started and abandoned projects so i think yeah i think the effort, you know putting a bit of effort in and, and and doing it the hard way like like every writer does to be honest but yeah certainly not the the short story i'm pretty uh, i'm pretty useless at those <laughs> i love your honesty you know what i mean oh no i just i'm just crap no good at short stories it is you know what I, mean? I think sometimes as well when you know I've heard a lot of times when people say about short stories, it is a hard little act to get into. Do you know what I mean? Get everything in yeah. in this short story. You know, yet some people say it's nice just to start a story and finish the thing within a week. You know? Yeah, I think you know, some people are very good at that as well. I mean, there are there are people who who largely you know you know make their name like Ted Chiang, uh, who you know has got a hell of a reputation for writing wonderful short stories. Um, Kelly Link being another, and uh, and you know some some people are, are excellent at those. It is it is a totally different craft. It's a you know it's a different. You, there are different things you can do, and I don't know really. It's, it's just I think with writing, especially, it, it tends to be one of those things. I think it's difficult. It's difficult to teach people. I think you've got this ability to do certain things. You can you can either write or you, you can either tell a good story rather, or you or you can't. And writing lessons can help refine those elements, but. I think there's something within you that you, you can't, you, you simply can or can't do. You can do bodge jobs. You know, like a, I've done a couple of short stories, and they're not. Yeah, you know, I don't think they're, they're they're rubbish, but I don't. I've struggled mentally to sort of to, to have that, you know, that sort of um, that small scale precise element. I'm a I'm a bit of a I'm, I'm a I'm a rambling man at heart. I think. Well, what is what is the process for writing for you? Is it? Is it does it come quite natural to you? You know, we're talking about the novels here, and you kind of every, you know you're writing your novels. Does it just come quite natural, and and it's or is it where it's it's you know it's cutting veins and drawing blood and just a whole load of nasty horribleness to get the words on the on the page? The writing itself, um, I think I think for anyone to get it right, it's always going to be a bit of effort. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Coming up with ideas is for me the easy thing to do. I can walk around and I can. I can, you can see a conversation in the streets or overhear a conversation or, or see, see something that goes on and you think that would make an interesting story and I write them all down. Uh, actually, that's not entirely true. I, I kind of, I leave them in my head for a while and if shit, they'll go away and if, <laughs> and if they're half decent ideas, I'll, then I'll write them down. Um, and I think once I've got a, an idea of the story in my head, 
I'm 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 likely to just um, to have the immediate sort of ten twenty thousand words in my head, a gradual vague vague sort of story that you know a vague finishing point rather, and and in between I kind of I come to it each each week and I break it down and I and I'll do things like um, I, I find going for a run or doing a bit of exercise or going for a walk is usually enough to make me to know what I'm going to write that evening. Um, so I've already planned it in my head, and I, I very, very rarely sit down and, and not know what to write, because I think that's, that's where people might suffer from writing. I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe in writer's block or not. I've, I think, you know, you have good days and bad days, but I think it's all to do with your planning and approach. Um, and, of course, you know, if you've got a deadline, you can't afford to have writer's block all that much. So, you know, you've got these sort of sticks carrying, you know, encouraging you to, to get things written down. But yeah, so in a in a in a in a vague waffly way, I think uh, every writer's different. But but for me, it, it's it's literally trying to struggle keeping the good ideas in one place and focusing on that. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't think I could ever struggle to have ideas. Is is writing then your full time, or is this just like a have you got a day job as well? No, I've got a, I've got a day job. I, I still um, I still work for Games Workshop, who own. Um, the Black Library and the, who, did, who did own Solaris, but it was it was sold off to Rebellion. Um, but I'm now working in a in a different part of that um, part of the company in the, in the web team, which is actually uh, a lot of a lot of fun. And also, it's good to it it allows me to con- you know for the for the writing to be my thing now. Because I think when you're when you're when you're having to to read manuscripts during a day and you come home and you write your own in the evening, um, it's it it. it, it I don't know. It, it makes it difficult having to to look at words so much because you struggle <laughs> to then pick up a book and just read it for pleasure. And I found since I've um, since I've stopped one of those, uh, uh, you know, I've stopped the the editorial side, and I'm now working um, for, mm. for, for for the web team for the main company. I can I can pick up a book and and just relax into it again, which hadn't happened. And it took a it took a few months. It, it's sort of the the opposite effect. You see people who go to work into publishing, and some of them. You know, they, they're reading all day now. Reading was this thing that you did for pleasure in the evening. It was a, it was a wonderful luxury, and suddenly it becomes your job. It's uh, it's not to say it's not fun, but I think just too many words can can make your head go a bit a bit funny. So you, you see, we've got book three out now. You know, book three, the book of the transformations. You see, you're writing another yeah. one. What comes after that then for yourself? Um, I've got well, I've got plans. Um, I've got, I've got a few ideas. I, I've, I don't really talk about projects that far in advance, largely because nothing may become, you know, nothing might, might happen with it. But I mean, I've been talking to my editor about a, about a few ideas. So, um, you know, I do have, I do have plenty of things in mind, but I think finishing off the series is, is the thing I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on at the moment. Again, going back to that point about trying to limit my idea that I've, I've actually sketched out a full, you know, a full novel. And in fact, you know, another series. But I've just I've just shelved it. I put it to one side. But no, you know that's that can be my reward for finishing a series <laughs> because I'm trying to tie everything up now from from three books before that, and that's uh, it's not a, it's a different challenge because I've never done it before. It's not any more difficult, but it's just something I'm not used to. So at the minute, I'm spending I'm spending my time doing that. Um, and of course, you know it, it's weird to think you know to think to, when you when you're, like, you're thinking so far in advance. And, and this, the third novel, only you know, it's just about to come out. So, uh, so, and it will be interesting to, you know, I'm going to be interested to see what people, people make of this book because 
Um, you know, it's got some, it's got some unusual characters in it. Well, unusual for the genre. Uh, it's got a, um, a transgender lead character, which is, you know, I've written about minorities before in the first couple of books. Is a, uh, a gay character who's a lead character. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be very interested to see what people make of this. Um, you know, and I partly do this to, to keep that challenging, to keep things interesting, to keep things. Um, I think as a writer, you're, you're looking to to learn things yourself, um, and and writing about you know, sort of minority characters or or just just unusual people. Um, you know, it makes it makes the job quite interesting. Well, Mark, honestly, I'm excited about the work you're putting out there. So, and I hope you know people listen to the show will will pop over to your site or you know get this book out there. That's fantastic, honestly. Good luck with everything that you do, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Well, listen, you look after yourself, and you know, fingers crossed, we'll we'll get you back on the show when you write a short story yeah. that you <laughs> will get that published. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, if I ever get around to it. Listen, Mark, look after yourself and take good care. All right, cheers. Thanks very much. There you go. I'll put a link on to Mark's site. You know, do pop over. Do think about taking out these books because, like I say, you know, it's just... China Mievel knows what, what's going on and, like I say, Mark kind of looked up to him and now Mark's putting out just amazing work as well. So do pop over there and say hello to Mark. Next up is a little short story by Jack Dan called Mohammed's Angel. This is a follow-on to Cafe Culture. Jack Dan is the multiple award-winning author who has written or edited over 75 books, including the international bestseller The Memory Cathedral, which was number one in the age bestseller list. If you go onto Jack's site, you'll find he's just sold a story with Barry N. Malzberg too. It's the British publication Postscripts. He's just sold a story called The Rapture, so look out for that. You know, as an editor, the, the man has just been, you know, working in the field for so long. And I don't mean that cheaply, but just some great books out there just coming out. Legends of Australian Fantasy with Jonathan Strand. In 2009, The Dragon Book with Gardner Does Was. Dreaming Again came out in 2008. Wizards, Magical Tales from Masters of Modern Fantasy with Gardner Does Was. That came out in 2007. Escape from Earth, New Adventures in Space with Gardner Does Was. Future's Past, you know, there's just so much work he's, he's kind of done and he's on the scene as well, so I'm really pleased to get this story. It is narrated by our very own Mike Boris. Mike has just done staggering work for Starship Sova. I'll put a link on the Mike site. Do pop over there. You will see how much work Mike's done. You know, Mike is a professional narrator now. This is his kind of his job, so just so pleased with Mike's work. Mike, thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Mohammed's Angel by Jack Dan The Australians love Vegemite, but we love death. Placard waved after Bali Settlement Massacre by Mohammed Gondor, Jr., 4 July, 2019. Laura Mackenzie Langer, tall, blonde, and handsome in her teal-blue Susie Marchette housedress, leaned against the cast-iron railing of her balcony and looked out at Wilson's promontory. Laura had loved the prom since she was a child. She used to imagine its landmass was a stone-gray dragon rising from the sea. It still looked like the mythical creature, especially now, when it was on fire. Smoke billowed up from the eastern tip of the national park like dragon's breath. It was another stinking hot morning. The air was bitter and autumn dry. 
Laura went back into her air-conditioned study, ordered her live-in housemaid, whom she'd nicknamed Helpless, to bring her another cup of tea and a Turkish cigarette, and then tried calling her mother again. Large fashion photos in white mats and black lacquered frames covered the walls, all photos of her. Laura was Susie Marchette, the Susie Marchette, even if her mother had created and established the Couturier brand. "'Hello, mother,' she said, directing Helpless to put her tea and cigarettes on the cloisonné table beside a chair with carved spiral arms where she had been sketching. The maid was a tall, fair-complected, almost pretty girl from Wales, who had presented herself to Laura's husband Jason as a legal entrant. But it was easy to see that her entry papers were forged. Laura suggested to Jason that he hire her as a provisional indentured at half wages. "'Mother?' "'Yes, dear, I can hear you very well.' The voice seemed to come from nowhere and float in the cool, breezy air. "'I've been trying to reach you all morning,' Laura said, agitated. "'Well, that's very kind of you, dear. I appreciate your concern.' Laura motioned to her maid, "'I need an ashtray and matches.' "'That's why you called me?' her mother asked. "'No, mother,' said Laura, resigned and frustrated. "'I was talking to Helpless. "'Turn on the visual, please. I can't stand talking to a disembodied voice.' "'You called me, remember? And I'm not ready to be presentable.' The maid brought the matches and a cut crystal ashtray. Laura waved her away. "'Yes, and I'm your daughter, remember? I don't care how you look. I was terribly worried about you.' "'Thank you, darling.' "'Have you seen the news?' "'Again with the news, always with the news. I told you never to marry a politician, remember? I told you to marry Murray Tashin.' who had his own money and would have given you a happy life. Mary Teshin is dead, mother, Laura said. May he rest in peace. You would have been a wealthy widow, and you wouldn't have to work yourself to the bone and prostitute your talent so the schmuck can afford to stay in office. Don't call him that. You do. Mother, God damn it, turn on the visual right now. I can't talk to you like this. If you want to see me, come back to Melbourne and buy me lunch at Vito's. I'm dying to walk down Collins Street again. I haven't done that since the riots. You know I can't do that. And why not? Well, first of all, I've got Hannah home today. The school called another day of prayer because of the shortfalls, and it's the nanny's day off. You're too lax with your help, her mother said. She's always off on Wednesdays, mother. And as you well know, my travel pass is good only for Thursdays and Saturdays. "'The schmuck has a diplomatic pass. You're his wife. God, even the premier's wife has an unrestricted pass.' "'I'm not the premier's wife,' Laura said. "'Obviously.' "'Mother, I only called to see if you were all right. And obviously you're all right, so I'll hang—' "'And why shouldn't I be all right?' her mother said placatingly. "'Because your shaheed neighbor martyred himself in your temple this morning.' "'My temple?' "'Unless there's another Beth David synagogue on Gray Street, half a block away from you,' Laura said. "'Don't tell me you didn't hear the explosion or feel the vibrations.' Her mother didn't respond. "'You shut down your implants, didn't you?' Laura said, sighing. "'It's the only way I can get a good night's sleep,' her mother said. "'Well, thank the good Lord you weren't there. I was so worried because you're always at the temple on Wednesday mornings. I slept in.' her mother said very quietly. Mother, turn on the damn visuals. I haven't been feeling up to par, she said vaguely. Then, did anyone survive the martyrdom? 
No, mother. The synagogue and the Catholic hospital next to it were completely destroyed, Laura said. Worse than the opera house. Now do you see why I was calling you? My neighbor. You said my neighbor. You don't mean the, the Gandor family. You don't mean Mohammed, do you? Yes. I think his name was something like that. He's such a lovely boy. He lives right next door in 11E. He always brings me presents. He brings you presents? Yes, presents. What does he bring you? What did he bring you? Just presents, her mother answered, and then dead silence. Laura called to her. The line was still intact. Mother? Mother, are you all right? Yes, dear. Don't be so impatient. I was just about to call emergency. I, I think I'd better call a doctor for you anyway. I just checked the news, her mother said, ignoring Laura's threat to call the doctor. Terrible! Terrible! Yes, it was Mohammed. He saved me. I told him I was going to stay home today. I'm sure that's why he picked today. Well, he told me that paradise was right in front of his eyes. I should have known something was up when he said it was just beneath his thumb. You're talking utter nonsense. Her mother sighed and said, Your sister Lorraine was always the smart one in the family, but she wouldn't call me if I was dying. Yes, she would, mother. So now you've got the business and most of the money, and you're as dumb... She stopped herself and said, I haven't got your university education, and I understand what Mohammed meant. And what was that, mother? Laura said coldly. He meant that the detonator lies beneath his thumb. She paused and said, I must have some flowers sent to his parents. I thought you said you checked the news. His mother and father were both in the temple. Whatever for? They're Muslims. How would I know? Laura said. You know all the answers. Go find Lorraine and ask her. Wait, Laura's mother said and checked the news again. Ah, it was the ecumenical breakfast. Oh, it's a big deal. The mayor and the bishop and the blind teleminister who speaks in tongues, and God only knows who else, will have been there. I'm surprised your husband wasn't in attendance. He's in Canberra, mother. Laura's mother sighed and said, Mohammed shouldn't have carried his parents away with him. He once told me, told you what, mother? Laura insisted. That he belongs to God, and that an angel came down from heaven to tell him that God is going to take revenge on all religions, on all the churches, mosques, and synagogues. And you never thought it might be an idea to report that to the authorities? At that moment, little Hannah ran into Laura's study. She had her mother's white blonde hair and dimples, and she was wearing pearl-pink jodhpurs and a matching pearl-neck cardigan. Mommy, who are you talking to? Daddy? The little girl looked around and said, He's not here. Then, in a hushed voice, Are you talking to Grandpa? Grandpa's in heaven, honey, remember? Hannah nodded sagely. Uh-huh, I remember, and that's why I thought maybe you were talking to him. Go put some shoes on. You'll get a sliver in your foot running around like that. She balanced on one foot and held the other one in her hand. Were you talking to Grandpa's ghost? I talked to angels in the garden, but you can see them. No, Hannah, I wasn't talking to Grandpa's ghost. At least he would have made some sense. I was talking to your pig-headed grandmother, who is in the process of going completely mad and has forgotten all her manners. Grandma doesn't have a pig head, and she doesn't get mad all the time like you, Hannah said, scowling and dropping back on two feet. That's right, baby, Laura's mother said. Her image suddenly appeared as big as life and in high-definition color and contrast in the center of the room, 
she wore an appropriate sea-blue nightdress, privacy veil, and satin morning scarf. "'Mommy's being very mean to Grandma,' she said to her granddaughter as she patted a brown and white masked beagle puppy that was wriggling around on her lap. "'She's mean to me, too,' Hannah said, and then suddenly realizing that there was a puppy on her grandmother's lap, she shrieked with joy. "'I want to pet the puppy, too. Is that your puppy? Where'd you get him? Mommy, I want a puppy, too. Why can't I have one? Is that one for me, Grandma?' "'This puppy's mine, sweetheart,' Hannah's grandmother said. "'He was a present. "'It's up to your mommy and daddy whether or not you get a dog.' "'She turned her gaze meaningfully to Laura. "'Go put your shoes on. Mommy's talking to Grandma.' "'What's the puppy's name, Grandma?' "'Henry. He's named after your grandfather.' "'If I had a dog, I'd name him after you, Grandma,' Hannah said. "'Lorelei would be a nice name if you had a female dog. "'But what if it's a male?' It won't be, Hannah said with authority. And when I get one, I'm going to name it Old Orr after you. That's not my name, Lorelei said, smiling. Now where on earth did you get that name from? From Daddy. Ah. Shoes, now, Laura shouted. And Hannah skipped out of the room, banging the Hindu temple door back against the wall. Old Orr, hey? Lorelei said. Mother, I may be a whore, darling, but I'm certainly not old. The fact that the schmuck always talks to my bust proves that something about me must be youthful. Indeed, Lorelei looked as young as her daughter, who had her mother's features, especially the thin aquiline nose. Although Laura was attractive, Lorelei was beautiful. Perhaps that explained why the media, especially the paparazzi, still called out for Lorelei at Marchette Mannequin Parades. Mother, Jason is just a schmuck. Look, Mother, I've got to go. As long as you're all right, that's all that concerns me. "'Do you want to know who gave me the dog?' Lorelei asked. "'No.' "'And what's this business about Hannah talking to angels in the garden?' "'All children have imaginary friends,' Laura said. "'She's not getting enough attention. "'That's all she gets is attention. "'She needs a companion. "'I'm not buying her a dog.' "'I miss your father,' Lorelei said, "'as if it was something she just remembered. "'Yes, mother, I know you do.' "'Then Lorelei smiled with nostalgia.' and mumbled to herself, as if she had forgotten she was still on the line with her daughter. At least Mohammed was interested in the ways of the flesh, if not in the ways of the world. And with that, Lorelei ended the connection, leaving Laura with nothing to do but light another Turkish cigarette, sit back down on her blue mohair velvet settee, call helpless, and watch Hannah sneaking shoeless back into the garden to talk with the angels. <laughs> There you go. Copyright is Jack Dan. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Mike. Next up, we have our very own Morgan Saletta with his everything. Morgan Squire. Hello and welcome to this month's installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Reflections in Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saletta. In last month's installment, I began a two-part discussion which I titled Islands in the Void. Leaving behind for a while the idea of science fiction as a hall of mirrors, reflecting our human nature back at us with the ape, the alien, and the android, to name but a few of the mirrored hall's galleries, I have chosen now to embark on an exploration of some of science fiction's conceptual constructions. Of course, there will be elements of reflection in the stories and speculative science we discuss, but they won't be the major focus, at least for the next few installments. 
Last month, I spoke about interstellar arcs and colony ships. In this installment, I will be speaking about space habitats and space colonies which may, one day, occupy our own solar system. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Islands in the Void Part 2, Space Colonies. Human beings are members of a global planetary species. From our humble beginnings in Africa, we have migrated around the globe, colonizing every continent but Antarctica, whose ecosystem is too harsh for anything but climate-controlled outposts and rotating settlement. Migration and colonization, it would seem, are in our blood. So it should be no surprise that some visionaries have even looked at the void of outer space and thought that there too lies a frontier, the high frontier, as Gerard O'Neill aptly titled it in his 1976 book of that title. Today I will not be talking about space stations per se, but rather permanent colonies, permanent settlements in space, true islands in the void, and true machines for living, if I may invoke the words of legendary architect Le Corbusier. To begin today's discussion, to begin today's discussion, I'd like to begin by reading and briefly comparing some extracts from two science fiction works which feature space colonies. William Gibson's cyberpunk masterpiece, Neuromancer, and a short story by Peter F. Hamilton entitled A Second Chance in Eden, set in his Night's Dawn universe. I'll begin with Gibson's description of Freeside, an orbital habitat located at the L5 point, one of five Lagrange orbital points in the Earth-Moon system, which are frequently posited as locations for space colonies. Archipelago, the islands, Taurus, Spindle, Cluster. Human DNA spreading out from gravity's steep well like an oil slick. Call up a graphics display that grossly simplifies the exchange of data in the L5 archipelago. One segment clicks in as red solid, a massive rectangle dominating your screen. Freeside. Freeside is many things, not all of them evident to the tourists who shuttle up and down the well. Freeside is brothel and banking nexus, pleasure dome and freeport, border town and spa. Freeside is Las Vegas and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, an orbital Geneva and home to a family inbred and most carefully refined, the industrial clan of Tessier and Ashpool. Later, Molly, she of the razor blades and mirror shades, describes it this way. It's just a big tube and they pour things through it, Molly said. Tourists, hustlers, anything. And there's fine mesh money screens working every minute. Make sure the money stays here when the people fall back down the well. Gibson's vision of the future, dark and in many ways dystopic, has been much discussed and is not the focus here. But I do wish to highlight that in the Sprawl Trilogy's universe, space colonization is seen as a free-for-all frontier, lawless and free of government control, where the rich can sever their ties to Earth governments, AIs struggle to overcome the limits the Turing police have imposed on them, and where religious groups, like the Rastafarians of the Zion colony, who help Case, can build their new Jerusalem. Very much like the real and mythological American West, in fact. I'll be speaking about the mythology of the American West and its influence on science fiction in later installments. Peter F. Hamilton's A Second Chance of Eden takes place in the relatively near future and explains the origins of the Edenist culture which appears in his Night's Dawn trilogy. The Earth's inhabitants, under assault by climate change-induced superstorms, have retreated to fortified arcologies or fled to the O'Neill halo of orbital colonies, 
and orbital outposts have been established around Jupiter as part of a helium-3 mining operation to provide fuel for clean fusion on Earth. The Jupiter colonies are huge O'Neill cylinders, more on these later, which are grown or germinated from seeds using advanced biotechnologies and asteroidal materials which are digested by the giant growing cylinders. At the beginning of the story, the protagonist, a UN policeman working for the Jovian Sky Corporation, is heading to one of the new habitats, called Eden. Eden was a rust-brown cylinder with hemispherical end caps, 8 kilometers long, 2,800 meters in diameter. But it had only been germinated in 2075, 15 years ago. I talked to Pieter Zernov during the flight from Earth's O'Neill halo. He was one of the genetics team who designed the habitats for the Jovian Sky Power Corporation, and he said they expected Eden to grow out to a length of 11 kilometers eventually. It was oriented with the end caps pointing north-south, so it rolled along its orbit. The polyp shell was smooth, looking more like a manufactured product than anything organic. Biology could never be that neat in nature. The only break in Eden's symmetry I could see were two rings of onion-shaped nodules spaced around the rim of each end cap. Specialist extrusion glands, they spun out organic conductor cables. There were hundreds of them, 80 kilometers long, radiating out from the habitat like the spokes of a bicycle wheel, rotation keeping them perfectly straight. It was an induction system. The cables sliced through Jupiter's titanic magnetosphere to produce all the power Eden needed to run its organs, as well as providing light and heat for the interior. Quite something, isn't it? I said as the habitat expanded to fill the screen. Later, when he and his family view the interior for the first time, they are overwhelmed at its beauty and a bit disoriented. The cyclorama was tropical parkland, lush emerald grass crinkled with random patches of trees. Silver streams meandered along shallow dales, all of them leading down to the massive circumfluous lake which ringed the base of the southern end cap. Every plant appeared to be in flower. Birds flashed through the air, tiny darts of primary color. A town was spread out around the rim of the northern end cap, mostly single-story houses of metal and plastic, moated by elaborately manicured gardens. A few larger civic buildings were dotted among them. I could see plenty of open-top jeeps driving around, and hundreds of bicycles. The way the landscape rose up like two green tidal waves heading for imminent collision was incredibly disorientating, unnerving too. Fortunately, the axial light tube blocked the apex, a captured sunbeam threaded between the end cap hubs. Lord knows what seeing people walking around directly above me would have done to my already reeling sense of balance. Now compare this description with Gibson's description of the interior of Freeside. The first thing he saw when they gained the inner surface of the spindle was a branch of the Beautiful Girl coffee franchise. Welcome to the Rude Jules Verne, Molly said. If you have trouble walking, just look at your feet. The perspective's a bitch if you're not used to it. They were standing in a broad street that seemed to be the floor of a deep slot or canyon its either end concealed by subtle angles in the shops and buildings that formed its walls. The light, here, was filtered through fresh green masses of vegetation, tumbling from overhanging tiers and balconies that rose above them. The sun. There was a brilliant slash of white somewhere above them, too bright, and the recorded blue of a canned sky. He knew that sunlight was pumped in with the Lotto-Atchison system, whose two-millimeter armature ran the length of the spindle that they generated a rotating library of sky effects around it, that if the sky were turned off, he'd stare up past the armature of light, to the curves of lakes, rooftops of casinos, other streets, but it made no sense to his body. Jesus, he said. While the two visions of the future here presented are clearly different, 
one dark and gritty, the other almost, though not quite, and that is the beauty of the story, idyllic. The descriptions of the space habitats are in some ways strikingly similar. It is clear that both writers were highly influenced by the NASA summer workshops of 1975 and 1976, and the work of Gerard O'Neill, which I'll discuss in more detail shortly. More influential than the actual technical diagrams and calculations was the artwork that came out of the NASA workshops by noted space artists Don Davis and Rick Gadis. These illustrations depicted in shiny, optimistic detail the stunning vistas and landscape gardens of the orbital colonies, complete with backyard parties, overhead hang gliders, and in one notable image, a large suspension bridge, included when O'Neill suggested to the artist that the view of the San Francisco Bay Area, where, incidentally, the summer workshops were held, would be perfect to show the scale of one of the large orbital colonies. I grew up next to NASA Ames, where the summer workshops were held, and the local public library, where my mother would leave my brother and I while she did her Saturday shopping, had an extraordinary collection of space and aeronautically related books. I remember vividly leafing through the Space Settlements book and O'Neill's The High Frontier, and dreaming of an age when humanity had escaped Earth's gravity well and colonized the heavens, a day I was convinced was coming soon. Of course, as I glanced heavenward, I also saw the P-3 Orion subhunters leaving Moffett Field every 15 minutes to hunt Soviet submarines, and I was equally convinced that the whole Bay Area, a primary nuclear target, was going to be vaporized in a flash of light, which, fortunately, didn't come true either. It seems clear from both Gibson and Hamilton's descriptions that they enjoyed these illustrated orbital wonderlands as much as I did. But even those not very familiar with science fiction or science speculation have no difficulty conjuring up an image of a space colony, probably a giant rotating wheel-like structure, as in Stanley Kubrick's and Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Science fiction buffs will be familiar with Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, the Death Star, and a host of other long-term space habitats and orbital colonies. But the first mention of a space station that I've found is in The Brick Moon, a story serialized in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine in 1865 and written by Edward Everett Hale. The story begins in a manner curiously reminiscent of Gerard O'Neill's own later experience as a sort of thought experiment explored between a professor and his students. In The Brick Moon, a group of, if I remember correctly, Harvard students, discuss a project to launch an artificial satellite in order to aid maritime navigation. As such, the story not only anticipates satellites, but also a kind of rudimentary and visual GPS system. While the thought experiment ends with a reflection on the prohibitive cost, the project is not totally forgotten, and when one of the groups makes his fortune, construction begins. The twist of the story is that the hollow structure is accidentally launched with a group of the builders on board, together with family members and barnyard animals, and the brick moon thus becomes a manned habitat. Of course, as we all know, the human body does not do so well in microgravity, and any permanent space habitat would need to be rotated to provide artificial gravity through centrifugal motion and force. The idea of spinning a spacecraft was first proposed by the Russian pioneer of space science, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, in 1903. Hermann Potoknik, also known as Hermann Nordun, developed the idea of a wheeled space station in his 1929 book, The Problem of Space Travel. His work heavily influenced the German rocket scientists Hermann Orberth and Werner von Braun, and included such modern ideas as the use of a giant mirror to shine sunlight into the station. Orberth was one of the great pioneers of rocketry, 
and a class of Federation ships in the Star Trek universe are named after him. Like von Braun, with whom he worked on the V2 project, Orberth was a visionary who had wide-ranging ideas about humanity's future in space, and who also, unfortunately, worked for the Nazis, though later he went to the United States and worked with von Braun. Incidentally, Orberth also served as a scientific consultant on Fritz Lang's The Woman in the Moon, one of the first motion pictures to have seen set in outer space, and which had an enormous popular influence, introducing the public to the ideas of rocketry and space exploration in a realistic style, or relatively so. It includes a multi-stage rocket and a countdown to zero. But back to rotating space habitats. The idea of a wheeled space station was further developed and popularized by Werner von Braun and Willie Ley, who also worked on The Woman in the Moon, in a now-famous article for Collier's magazine in 1951. It is this version of the wheeled habitat that served as an inspiration for the station in, in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Another popular design for a space habitat is, like the brick moon, a sphere. In 1929, J.D. Bernal, in his essay, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, which I mentioned in my last installment, envisaged giant spherical shells some 10 miles in diameter and fabricated from asteroidal material, another popular idea. These structures are now known as Bernal spheres, and I will return to them again shortly. But the modern, scientifically plausible idea of large-scale permanent space colonies for large numbers of people really takes off with the work of Dr. Gerard O'Neill. Gerard O'Neill began his career as an experimental physicist and invented the technology of storage rings that helps make high-energy particle physics possible. He went on to teach at Princeton in the mid-1960s and stayed till he retired in 1985. At the height of the Apollo program in 1969, O'Neill began revising the introductory physics course he taught, introducing a series of learning guides designed to teach the application of physics. At the end of the course, O'Neill asked his students to design a human colony in space and to submit their calculations in a term paper. The result was rather surprising. It became quickly apparent that even with known materials, steel, concrete, and glass, it would be possible, at least in theory, to build very large structures, spheres or cylinders, and rotate them for artificial gravity. In 1974, he published a paper, The Colonization of Space, that outlined his idea for large orbital colonies located at the Lagrange points where the Earth and the Moon's gravity balance each other out. The large cylinders with city-sized populations that he proposed are now known as O'Neill cylinders, and variation of this design appear in many science fiction works. In 1975, NASA sponsored a summer workshop at NASA Ames, led by O'Neill, and this resulted in a detailed proposal entitled Space Settlements, a Design Study, a book about which I spoke earlier. This is still probably the most detailed proposal for orbital space colonization, and dealt with aspects such as lunar construction materials, agriculture to feed the colonists, and the manufacture of huge solar power satellites to beam power back to Earth, an idea still very much ahead of its day though recent feasibility tests have shown promise, and the Pentagon is rumored to be interested in the idea again. But then again, what isn't DARPA interested in? The NASA summer studies of 1975 and 1976 led to several designs which remain popular, both in speculative science and speculative fiction. The Stanford Taurus is a large variant of the classical wheeled station, essentially a hollow donut, capable of housing between 10,000 and 140,000 colonists, depending on its size. O'Neill and the participants of the workshops also proposed a design called Island One, 
This design is a modified Bernal sphere. The Island 1 version would be only 500 meters in diameter, and it would rotate, providing approximately one Earth gravity at its equator. A wide strip of landscape interior would thus be habitable for about 10,000 people, and giant mirrors would shine sunlight into the interior. O'Neill also designed a larger Bernal-type sphere called Island 2, and a much larger colony called, yes, you guessed it, Island 3. It is this design and its variants which are more generally known as O'Neill cylinders. O'Neill imagined a pair of cylinders each some 20 miles long and 4 miles in diameter. The cylinders would rotate in opposite directions to cancel out gyroscopic precession that would make aligning them to the sun, and thus maximizing shielding, difficult. Science fiction fans will recognize O'Neill cylinders from a number of works, including the mobile Gundam anime series, which features many of these colonies, and whose artwork is very much inspired by the works of Don Davis and Rick Gadis. Another idea, popularized by Larry Niven in his known space stories featuring the asteroid-dwelling Belters, is known as the Bubble World. Proposed in 1963 by Dandridge Cole and Donald Cox in their book Islands in Space, The Challenge of the Planetoids, the idea is deceptively simple in its elegance. Take one large iron or iron-nickel asteroid and drill through its longest axis, then fill the tunnel with something volatile, like water for instance. Take one large solar mirror and turn the heat to broil, focusing the sun's energy to weld shut the tunnels, then to slowly heat the entire asteroid, spinning it like a rotisserie chicken to get the heat nice and even, and then, pow! As the heated water expands, it inflates the entire asteroid, which spins out into a rough cylinder. After cooling, the interior can be transformed into a hollow biosphere. In Niven's known space books, the Belter civilization used habitats of this sort as major population centers. Of course, science fiction fans will also remember that Larry Niven created Ringworld, a huge ring-shaped habitat orbiting a star with a diameter similar to that of a planet's orbit, and with a habitable area of many thousands of Earths. But I will put off discussion of the Ringworld, Dyson spheres, and other megastructures, or, as some like to call them, big dumb objects, until the next installment. This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. There you go, Morgan. What can I say? Sir? That rabbit hole is so deep. Thank you. Right, main fiction. It is by Walter Tevis, The Big Bounce. So who is Walter Tevis? Well, he wrote the book, The Hustler, and the other book, The Colour of Money. And, believe it or not, the fantastic story, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was turned into the David Bowie movie as well. So he also wrote a story called Queen's Gambit. But the one, honestly, the one I just love is Mockingbird. It just... It's a, well, I'll read what, what it says. A world where humans wander, drugged and lulled by electronic bliss. A dying world of no children, no art, no reading. A strange love triangle. Spore forth the most perfect machine ever created to only wish to die. Paul and Mary Lou, who passion for each other is the only future. Some still refuse to surrender. Yeah, honestly, get yourself this story. This story is just staggering. Walter Tevis was born in 1928 and unfortunately died in 1984. American novelist and short story writer. Three of his six stories, like I say, were adapted into the major films, The Hustler, Colour and Money, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Like I say, when I discovered him, do you know what I mean? It was just kind of like a breath of fresh air. That book, you know, I'll never forget it, to be quite honest. It's right up there. And it's actually in, you know, these... 
science fiction masterworks, you know, by a glance. It's one of those books as well, and that's how I discovered it. Just fantastic. The story is narrated by Chris White. Chris came to me a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, actually, and just said, Tony, I'd love to, you know, narrate. And we had a little bit kind of trouble getting Chris's sound audio right. You know, it took a few goes, a few attempts, but he stuck at it. So, Chris, I'm just chuffed a bit. He's going to get loads of stuff now. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present The Big Bounce by Walter Tevis. Seeing it in action, anybody would quaver in alarm. What hath Farnsworth overwrought? Let me show you something, Farnsworth said. He set his near-empty drink, a Bacardi Martini, on the mantel and waddled out of the room toward the basement. I sat in my big leather chair, feeling very peaceful with the world, watching the fire. Whatever Farnsworth would have to show tonight would be far more entertaining than watching TV, my custom on other evenings. Farnsworth, with his four labs in the house and his very tricky mind, never failed to provide my best night of the week. When he returned after a moment, he had with him a small box about three inches square. He held this carefully in one hand and stood by the fireplace dramatically, or as dramatically as a very small, very fat man with pink cheeks can stand by a fireplace of the sort that seems to demand a big man with tweeds, pipe and perhaps a sabre wound. Anyway, he held the box dramatically and he said, Last week I was playing around in the chem lab trying to make a new kind of rubber eraser. Did quite well with the other drafting equipment, you know, especially the dimensional curve and the photosensitive ink. Well, I approached the job by trying for a material that would absorb graphite without abrading paper. I was a little disappointed by this. It sounded pretty tame, but I said, how did it come out? He screwed his pudgy face up thoughtfully. Synthesized the material all right, and it seems to work. But the interesting thing is that it has a certain uh, secondary property that would make it quite awkward to use. Interesting property, though. Unique, I am inclined to believe. This began to sound more like it. And what property is that? I poured myself a shot of straight rum from the bottle sitting on the table beside me. I did not like straight rum, but I preferred it to Farnsworth's rather imaginative cocktails. I'll show you, John, he said. He opened the box, and I could see that it was packed with some kind of batting. He fished in this and withdrew a grey ball about the size of a golf ball. And that's the eraser? I asked. Yes, he said. Then he squatted down, held the ball about a half inch from the floor, dropped it. It bounced, naturally enough, then it bounced again, and again. Only this was not natural, for on the second bounce the ball went higher in the air than on the first, and on the third bounce higher still. After a half minute my eyes were bugging out, and the little ball was bouncing four feet in the air and going higher each time. I grabbed my glass. What the hell? I said. Farnsworth caught the ball in a pudgy hand and held it. He was smiling a little sheepishly. Interesting effect, isn't it? 
Now wait a minute, I said, beginning to think about it. What's the gimmick? What kind of motor do you have in that thing? His eyes were wide and a little hurt. No gimmick, John, none at all. Just a very peculiar molecular structure. Structure, I said. Bouncing balls don't just pick up energy out of nowhere. I don't care how their molecules are put together. And you don't get energy out without putting energy in. Oh, he said. That's the really interesting thing. Of course, you're right. Energy does go into the ball. Here, I'll show you. He let the ball drop again, and it began bouncing, higher and higher, until it was hitting the ceiling. Farnsworth reached out to catch it, but he fumbled, and the thing glanced off his hand, hit the mantelpiece, and zipped across the room. It banged into the far wall, ricocheted, banged off three other walls, picking up speed all the time. When it whizzed by me like a rifle bullet, I began to get worried. But it hit against one of the heavy draperies by the window, and this damped its motion enough so that it fell to the floor. It started bouncing again immediately, but Farnsworth scrambled across the room and grabbed it. He was perspiring a little, and he began instantly to transfer the ball from one hand to another and back again as if it were hot. Here, he said, and handed it to me. I almost dropped it. It's like a ball of ice, I said. Have you been keeping it in the refrigerator? No. As a matter of fact, it was at room temperature a few minutes ago. Now wait a minute, I said. I only teach physics in high school, but I know better than that. Moving around in warm air doesn't make anything cold except by evaporation. Well, there's your input and output, John, he said. The ball lost heat and took on motion. Simple conversion. My jaw must have dropped to my waist. Do you mean that little thing is converting heat to kinetic energy? Apparently. But that's impossible. He was beginning to smile thoughtfully. The ball was not as cold now as it had been, and I was holding it in my lap. A steam engine does it, he said. And a steam turbine. Of course, they're not very efficient. They work mechanically, too, and only because water expands when it turns to steam. This seems to do it differently, he said, sipping thoughtfully at his dark brown martini. I don't know exactly how. Maybe something piezoelectric about the way its molecules slide about. I ran some tests, measured its impact energy in foot-pounds, and compared that with the heat loss in BTUs. Seemed to be about 98% efficient, as close as I could tell. Apparently it converts heat into bounce very well. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting? I almost came flying out of my chair. My mind was beginning to spin like crazy. If you're not pulling my leg with this thing, Farnsworth, you've got something by the tail there that's just a little bit bigger than the discovery of fire. He blushed modestly. I'd rather thought that myself, he admitted. Good Lord, look at the heat that's available, I said, getting really excited now. Farnsworth was still smiling, very pleased with himself. I suppose you could put this thing in a box with convection fins and let it bounce around inside. I'm way ahead of you, I said. 
but that wouldn't work. All your kinetic energy would go right back to heat on impact, and eventually that little ball would build up enough speed to blast its way through any box you could build. Then how would you work it? Well, I said, choking down the rest of my rum, you'd seal the ball in a big steel cylinder, attach the cylinder to a crankshaft and flywheel, give the thing a shake to start the ball bouncing back and forth, and let it run like a gasoline engine or something. It would get all the heat it needed from the air in a normal room. Mount the apparatus in your house, and it would pump your water, operate a generator, and keep you cool at the same time. I sat down again shakily, and began pouring myself another drink. Farnsworth had taken the ball from me and was carefully putting it back in its padded box. He was visibly showing excitement too. I could see that his cheeks were ruddier and his eyes even brighter than normal. But what if you want the cooling and you don't have any work to be done? Simple, I said. You just let the machine turn a flywheel or lift weights and drop them or something like that outside your house. You have an air intake outside, and if, in the winter, you don't want to lose heat, you just mount the thing in an outside building, attach it to your generator, and use the power to do whatever you want. Heat your house, say. There's plenty of heat in the outside air, even in December. John, said Farnsworth, you are very ingenious. It might work. Of course it'll work. Pictures were beginning to light up in my head. And don't you realize that this is the answer to the solar power problem? Why, mirrors and selenium are at best 10% efficient. Think of big pumping stations on the Sahara. All that heat, all that need for power, for irrigation. I paused a moment for effect. Farnsworth, this can change the very shape of the earth. Farnsworth seemed to be lost in thought. Finally, he looked at me strangely and said, Perhaps we had better try to build a model. I was so excited by the thing that I couldn't sleep that night. I kept dreaming of power stations, ocean liners, even automobiles, being operated by balls bouncing back and forth in cylinders. I even worked out a spaceship in my mind, a bullet-shaped affair with a huge rubber ball on its end, gyroscopes to keep it oriented properly, the ball serving a solution to that biggest of missile engineering problems, excess heat. You'd build a huge concrete launching field, supported all the way down to bedrock, hop in the ship and start bouncing. Of course, it would be kind of a rough ride. In the morning, I called my superintendent and told him to get a substitute for the rest of the week. I was going to be busy. Then I started working in the machine shop in Farnsworth's basement, trying to turn out a working model of a device that, by means of a crankshaft, oleodampers and a reciprocating cylinder, would pick up some of that random kinetic energy from the bouncing ball and do something useful with it, like turning a drive shaft. I was just working out a convection and air pump system for circulating hot air around the ball when Farnsworth came in. He had tucked carefully under his arm a sphere of about the size of a basketball and, if he had made it to my specifications, 
weighing thirty-five pounds. He had a worried frown on his forehead. It looks good, I said. What's the trouble? There seems to be a slight hitch, he said. I've been testing for conductivity. It seems to be quite low. That's what I'm working on now. It's just a mechanical problem of pumping enough warm air back to the ball. We can do it with no more than a twenty percent efficiency loss. In an engine, that's nothing. Maybe you're right, but this material conducts heat even less than rubber does. The little ball yesterday didn't seem to have any trouble. I said, "Naturally not. It had had plenty of time to warm up before I started it, and its mass-surface area relationship was pretty low. The larger you make a sphere, of course, the more mass inside in proportion to the outside area." You're right. But I think we can whip it. We may have to honeycomb the ball and have part of the work the machine does operate a big hot air pump. But we can work it out. All that day I worked with lathe, milling machine, and hacksaw. After clamping the new big ball securely to a workbench, Farnsworth pitched in to help me. But we weren't able to finish by nightfall, and Farnsworth turned his spare bedroom over to me for the night. But we weren't able to finish by nightfall, and Farnsworth turned his spare bedroom over to me for the night. I was too tired to go home, and too tired to sleep soundly too. Farnsworth lived on the edge of San Francisco by a big truck bypass, and almost all night I wrestled with the pillow and sheets, listening half-consciously to those heavy trucks rumbling by. And in my mind, always that little grey ball, bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. At daybreak, I came abruptly, fully awake, with the sound of crashing echoing in my ears, a battering sound that seemed to come from the basement. I grabbed my coat and pants, rushed out of the room, almost knocked over Farnsworth, who was struggling to get his shoes on out in the hall. And we scrambled down the two flights of stairs together. The place was a chaos, battered and bashed equipment everywhere, and on the floor, overturned against the far wall, the table that the ball had been clamped to, the ball itself was gone. I had not been fully asleep last night, and the sight of that mess and what it meant jolted me immediately awake. Something, probably a heavy truck, had started a tiny oscillation in that ball, and the ball had been heavy enough to start the table bouncing with it until, by dancing that table around the room, it had literally torn the clamp off and shaken itself free. What had happened afterwards was obvious, with the ball building up velocity with every successive bounce. But where was the ball now? Suddenly, Farnsworth cried out hoarsely, "Look!" And I followed his outstretched, pudgy finger to where, at one side of the basement, a window had been broken open—a small window, but plenty big enough for something the size of a basketball to crash through it. There was a little weak light coming from outdoors, and then I saw the ball. It was in Farnsworth's backyard, bouncing a little sluggishly on the grass. The grass would damp it, hold it back until we could get to it, unless.
I took off up the basement steps like a streak. Just beyond the backyard I had caught a glimpse of something that frightened me. A few yards from where I had seen the ball was the edge of the big six-lane highway, a broad ribbon of smooth, hard concrete. I got through the house to the back porch, rushed out and was in the backyard just in time to see the ball take its first bounce onto the concrete. I watched it, fascinated when it hit. After the soft, energy-absorbing turf, the concrete was like a springboard. Immediately, the ball flew high in the air. I was running across the yard toward it, praying under my breath, fall on that grass next time. It hit before I got to it, and right on the concrete again, and this time I saw it go straight up at least fifty feet. My mind was suddenly full of thoughts of dragging mattresses from the house, or making a net of something to stop that hurtling thirty-five pounds, but I stood where I was, unable to move, and saw it come down again on the highway. It went up a hundred feet, and down again on the concrete, about fifteen feet further down the road, in the direction of the city. This time it was two hundred feet, and when it hit again it made a thud that you could have heard for a quarter of a mile. I could practically see it flatten out on the road before it took off upward again at twice the speed it had hit. Suddenly, generating an idea, I whirled and ran back to Farnsworth's house. He was standing in the yard now, shivering from the morning air, looking at me like a little lost and badly scared child. "'Where are your car keys?' I almost shouted at him. "'In my pocket. Come on!' I took him by the arm and half dragged him to the carport. I got the keys from him, started the car, and by mangling about seven traffic laws and three prize rose bushes, managed to get on the highway, facing in the direction that the ball was heading. Look, I said, trying to drive down the road and search for the ball at the same time. It's risky, but if I can get the car under it and we can hop out in time, it should crash through the roof. That ought to slow it down enough for us to nab it. But what about my car? Farnsworth bleated. What about that first building, or first person it hits in San Francisco? Oh, he said, hadn't thought of that. I slowed the car and stuck my head out of the window. It was lighter now, but no sign of the ball. If it happens to get to town any town for that matter. It'll be falling from about ten or twenty miles, or forty. Maybe it'll go high enough first so that it'll burn like a meteor. No chance, I said. Built-in cooling system, remember? Farnsworth formed his mouth into an O, and exactly at that moment there was a resounding thump and I saw the ball hit in a field maybe twenty yards from the edge of the road and take off again. This time it didn't seem to double its velocity, and I figured the ground was soft enough to hold it back, but it wasn't slowing down either, not with a bounce factor of better than two to one. Without watching for it to go up, I drove as quickly as I could off the road and over, carrying part of a wire fence with me, to where it had hit. There was no mistaking it. There was a depression about three feet deep, like a small crater. 
I jumped out of the car and stared up. It took me a few seconds to spot it over my head. One side caught by the pale and slanting morning sunlight it was only a bright diminishing speck. The car motor was running and I waited until the ball disappeared for a moment and then reappeared. I watched for another couple of seconds until I felt I could make a decent guess on its direction, hollered at Farnsworth to get out of the car, it had just occurred to me that there was no use risking his life too, dove in and drove a hundred yards or so to the spot I had anticipated. I stuck my head out of the window and up. The ball was the size of an egg now. I adjusted the car's position, jumped out and ran for my life. It hit instantly after about sixty feet from the car, and at the same time it occurred to me that what I was trying to do was completely impossible. Better to hope that the ball hit a pond, or bounced out to sea, or landed in a sand dune. All we could do would be to follow, and if it ever was damped down enough, grab it. It had soft ground, and didn't double its height this time, but it had still gone higher, it was out of sight for almost a lifelong minute. And then, incredibly rotten look, it came down with an ear-shattering thwack on the concrete highway again. I had seen it hit, and instantly afterward I saw a crack as wide as a finger open up along the entire width of the road, and the ball had flown back up like a rocket. My God, I was thinking, now it means business, and on the next bounce... It seemed like an incredibly long time that we craned our necks, Farnsworth and I, waiting for it to reappear in the sky, and when it finally did we could hardly follow it. It whistled like a bomb, and we saw the grey streak come plummeting to earth almost a quarter of a mile away from where we were standing. But we didn't see it go back up again. For a moment we stared at each other silently. Then Farnsworth almost whispered, Perhaps it's landed in a pond. Or in the world's biggest cow pile, I said. Come on. We could have met our deaths by rock salt and buckshot that night if the farmer who owned that field had been home. We tore up everything we came to getting across it, including cabbages and rhubarb. But we had to search for ten minutes and even then we didn't find the ball. What we found was a hole in the ground that could have been a small-scale meteor crater. It was a good twenty feet deep, but at the bottom, no ball. I started wildly at it for a full minute before I focused my eyes enough to see, at the bottom, a thousand little grey fragments. And immediately it came to both of us at the same time. A poor conductor... The ball had used up all its available heat on that final impact. Like a golf ball that has been dipped in liquid air and dropped, it had smashed into thin splinters. The hole had sloping sides and I scrambled down it and picked up one of the pieces using my handkerchief folded. There was no telling just how cold it would be. It was the stuff all right and colder than an icicle. I climbed out. Let's go home, I said. Farnsworth looked at me thoughtfully. Then he sort of cocked his head to one side and asked, What do you suppose will happen when those pieces thaw? I stared at him. 
I began to think of a thousand tiny slivers whizzing around erratically, ricocheting off buildings in downtown San Francisco and in twenty counties, and no matter what they hit, moving and accelerating as long as there was any heat in the air to give them energy. And then I saw a tool shed on the other side of the pasture from us. But Farnsworth was ahead of me, waddling along, puffing. He got the shovels out and handed one to me. We didn't say a word, neither of us, for hours. It takes a very long time to fill a hole twenty feet deep, especially when you're shoveling very, very carefully and packing down the dirt very, very hard. And there you go. That is show 190. God, 190 of them shows. Wow. Hope you've enjoyed it. You know, do stick around. Do enjoy it. That's what it's all about. Had some lovely emails lately and some very kind, honestly, very kind donations. Thank you, everyone who's donated to keep Starship Silver running. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.